You sang well this morning, much better than you did on the hymn last Sunday. I guess it pays to uh, browbeat you every once in a while into singing uh, with a little more energy. These days we are looking in the Gospels for questions that Jesus asked. Uh, today's text is from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. And notice the several questions that Jesus asks in our text this morning. Uh, they could all be under the category of uh, the question, what good is it to worry? Give your reverent attention to God's holy word. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. May God bless this, his word, to us. I think it's difficult for us to think of Jesus as our contemporary. Despite his eternal life and despite his promise to be with us always, everywhere, we are more likely to associate him with days gone by than we are with today. Jesus walking the fields of Palestine and the roads of Galilee, we can imagine. But Jesus striding the streets of our city, Jesus walking down our sidewalk, now that's a little bit harder. He is out of place. He is an anachronism. He doesn't fit. We who say we follow Jesus are more likely to hear Jesus as a voice out of the past instead of a voice in the present. We need to rediscover Christ, our contemporary. The good news of the incarnation, the enfleshment of Jesus Christ, is not only that he was born as a baby 2,000 years ago and lived as a man for about 30 years and then died and then was somehow absent from human life. 
The good news in that pivotal event of human history is that Jesus Christ lives. Not that he lived and died, but that he lives. And so he's as much our contemporary as he was James's or John's or Peter's. He knows Torrance and the South Bay and perhaps even Redondo Beach uh, as well as he knew Nazareth and Galilee. He knows the 405 as well as he knew the narrow, dangerous path that led from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he knows us. He knows our ambitions, our anxieties. He knows our depressions, our dreams. He knows our fears, our failures, our cares, our worries. Just as certainly as he knew those of the Samaritan woman or Nicodemus, or Peter, or Mary, or Martha. He knows us. And knowing us, he can give us advice that we can take with confidence. He can instruct us, as he does in this text, do not worry. And his instructions can have as much credibility for us as they did for the people who first heard them. And if we let it, our text this morning can be the beacon which stands at the end of that tunnel of worry and marks the beginning of life lived free from worry, life lived in the light of the world. First, we have to realize what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is neither Alfred E. Newman nor Bobby McFerrin. Now, Alfred E. Newman might need some explanation to the younger ones of you. Uh, he was the cover boy of Mad Magazine. Almost every issue, he stared out at you from the cover uh, with those eyes. Uh, one was slightly lower than the other, a gap-toothed grin, freckled face, and red hair. And uh, Alfred E. Newman had as his motto for life, and it appeared somewhere in the magazine every month, what? Me worry? Jesus is not advising us to be like Alfred E. Newman and just have this empty-headed, what me worry kind of attitude. Nor is Jesus Bobby McFerrin. Now, if Martin and Dean had not escaped out of town, I was going to have them and Dave join me on the platform, and we would sing for you, Don't Worry, Be Happy. In every life, we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. The landlord says your, rate, your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Bad rhyme, but I guess it works. Don't worry. Be happy. Now, it's easy to read these verses that are our text this morning as if it's just a biblical version of Bobby McFerrin's hit song. You realize he won a Grammy for that uh, song? It was on 
the chart says number one back in 1988. I guess that dates me a little bit. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying turn your back on your troubles, put a smile on your face, refuse to worry, just be happy. The advice of Scripture is never that just be happy kind of thing. God doesn't want us to worry. It's a destructive emotion and attitude. It doesn't accomplish anything positive in our lives. In a sense, God wants us to be happy, but it's not a simple matter of choosing happiness over worry. The solution to not being able to pay the rent is not as simple as don't worry about it. At least from the landlord's perspective, it's not. Don't worry about it, just be happy. His words neither can be used as they have been used as a defense of such unwise practices as not having insurance policies or refusing to work today for any more than is needed to meet today's needs. Uh, Jesus isn't here condemning wise planning for the future. What he is condemning and advising us against is that undue anxiety, that nervous anxiety about it. He's condemning worry as a state of mind, worry as our habitual response to life and its circumstances. He is saying, don't keep on worrying or don't make worry your default mode. Now, the text that I've read this morning can be divided neatly into two sections. The first section deals with reasons why we shouldn't worry, and the second section, the last two verses, gives Jesus' formula for how to stop worrying. The first reason Jesus gives for not worrying is theological. Anxiety is atheistical. Anxiety is atheistical. That's worth writing in the margin of your Bible at Matthew 5. The person of God, says Jesus, should not be a worrier because worrying is a fundamental denial of who God has shown himself to be. First it denies that God exists and then it denies that God is good. It is calling him who said, you are my children, a liar. The Bible is the record of God's dealings with people. And from beginning to end, it shows God as completely trustworthy. Abraham stepped out faithfully, and God took care of him. Moses and the people of Israel found out that God would not leave them to die in the wilderness, but God finished leading them to the promised land. David, a man whom God had every right to abandon as not worth the effort, died as a person of God. Job, who was encouraged by his wife and friends to curse God and die, discovered that God was a fit object of his tortured faith. And that first band of disciples discovered that the one who said, follow me, did not lead them into a blind alley. And so it has been with God's people for generations. We have learned over and over again that God is who he says he is. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He can be counted on. He will do what he says he will do. And the person who adopts worrying as his normal pattern of life ignores millennia of history. God working among people. 
It ignores the message of those millennia, and that is God can be trusted. And so joy ought to replace worry. But it's joy uh, not uh, located just any old place, but, but joy located and based on God's position. The root, the source of the joy was captured in that hymn that we sang a few moments ago, ago, Rejoice, the Lord is King. And the first lines of each verse say it very well. This is God's position. This is God's settled position in the universe. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. The Lord, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. His kingdom cannot fail. Our Lord, the judge, shall come. Rejoice in glorious hope. He rules o'er earth and heaven. You see how it's located in God's position, God's standing as the king and judge over all the universe? So lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. So the antidote to worry is trust in God. Uh, Jesus drew on nature for two illustrations of what we can expect God to do. First, he talked about the birds. There's no worry in their lives. There's no attempt to pile up goods for an unforeseen future. The point that Jesus is making is not that birds don't work. If you look at birds, you'll see that they're quite busy, actually. The point is that birds don't worry, yet their lives go on. The God who has so ordered things so that birds are fed without their having to worry about it, can he not be trusted to care for us, for people who are the crown of his creation? And then from the birds of the air, Jesus directed his listeners' attention to the flowers of the field. They probably weren't lilies, though it says that in the King James uh, Version. I always imagined Easter lilies growing all over the Holy Land because of that uh, translation. They are just a common flower, probably the poppy. Uh, to this day, on the hillsides of Palestine, there are poppies that bloom just for a day or two, and then they're gone, and then the grass is cut and burned. In their brief life, though, they wear clothes fit for a king. And the argument is, if God gives so much beauty to a one-day flower, can he not be counted on to care in a generous way for men and women whom he has created to live with him forever? Jesus is asking us to return to a simple faith. Not a faith which ignores facts, but a faith that's based on the great fact. Not a faith, faith that flies in the face of logic, but a faith that found, finds its foundation in a reasonable look at how things are. If we really believe that God is the giver of life, surely we can trust him to bring into our lives everything that's needed to sustain them. Worry, says Jesus, is characteristic of the pagans, those who do not know God or what God is like. 
God shows himself to his people. Worry is essentially distrust of God. It can be expected in those who don't know him. Uh, the pagans of Jesus' day thought of their gods as jealous and capricious and unpredictable. They did whatever they wanted to do. But God is not like that. Uh, God is the one whom we call Father, whom we are encouraged to call Father. The one who follows Jesus should not worry because he believes in the God, the God of love. The second reason that Jesus gives for not worrying is uh, very practical. Uh, not only is anxiety atheistical, it's very futile. It's foolish to worry because worry gets you nowhere. It's absolutely profitless. It does not benefit the worrier, rather it robs the worrier. Now Jesus was talking to people who had good reason to worry. If you think life is hard now, you should have been living back then. A man would make just pennies a day at hard labor. The Roman tax typically was 40 cents on the dollar. That's confiscatory. Food, when it could be bought, was very expensive. Crops failed all the time. Bands of thieves roamed the countryside and lay in wait. Disease ran unchecked through whole populations. There was plenty to worry about then, as there is now. But worry is absolutely useless. It changes nothing about the events or circumstances. It only changes the worrier. We have a couple of sayings. We speak of people being worried to death, don't we? Or someone might say, I'm worried sick. Worry is a futile energy-sapping activity of the mind that leads to nowhere and to nothing constructive. Worry can destroy completely our ability to enjoy the good gifts of God that we have because we're too busy thinking about the disaster that might be just around the bend. Worry can change people who God wants to join him in shaping the future, in extending the kingdom into men and women who run from the future as if from a fearful monster. Worry gets you nowhere. I don't have to illustrate that. How about you? Have you worried about anything this past week? Anything at all? If you say, no, see me afterwards, I have a remedial class for liars. We all worry. Where did your worry get you this past week? Well, thank God that Jesus didn't just say, stop worrying. He didn't just say, stop it. He tells us how to stop worrying, how to stop being anxious as our default mode our habitual response to life. His instructions are to seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness. Now that's a familiar verse to most of us, so familiar that we have no idea anymore what it means. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a magical kingdom of the future, but it is, it is the practical kingdom of the present and the future. Do you understand that? When Jesus arrived, he said, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is here. He was inviting people into life as citizens of the kingdom of God. God's power is unleashed in the world through Jesus Christ. And that kingdom is built as we allow God to rule in our relationships. The righteousness that we're to seek is not some distant, abstract, theological concept, but it's simply right living in those relationships of the kingdom. It is doing the right things. It is living the right kind of life. And so Jesus' cure for worry is actively pursuing the kingdom stuff, actively pursuing proper relationships, first with God and then with ourselves and then with family and friends and then with the world. And that cures worry in two ways. First, if we give ourselves to developing those right relationships, we won't have much time to worry. And secondly, much of our worrying results in the first place from bad relationships of one kind or another. If we concentrate on developing good relationships, we'll have less cause to worry. People worry a great deal about their relationship with God. If there's one thing I've learned from talking with people over the last 40 years of pastoring, it is that people really are worried about their relationship with God. Uh, they ask the classic question, could I possibly have committed the unpardonable sin? Uh, they ask, does God still love me in spite of what I've done? They worry about their relationship with God. Uh, if those aren't reasons enough to worry. They, they make things up like, uh, do I properly understand every detail of the end times? Do I have all the events arranged in their correct order? People worry about their relationship with God. And the answer for their worry, the cure for their anxiety, is not to slap a Bible verse on them. The answer is they're active working toward right living in their relationship with God. It is the seekers, not the worriers, who are rewarded. And cause for worry banishes in a sincere effort to make your two-way conversation with God what it should be. The person who's on speaking terms with God has no reason to worry whether God loves him because God writes, I love you, on every page of the Bible. And God speaks that same phrase in every silent moment in our prayers. I love you. The cure for worrying about your relationship with God is found in paying proper attention to that relationship. And the same is true of, of the other relationships of life. If you're troubled by a relationship with your child, if communication has uh, somehow been stifled, Try to open that channel of communication. And whether you succeed or not, that effort will rid you of the worry. 
if you're worried about the state of affairs in American government, then become an informed, active citizen. And that will go a long way to take care of your anxiety. If you're worried about this, the pressing social problems of our day, then join the fight. And joining the fight will take away your cause for worry. The person free from worry is the person who's got his priorities straightened out. He seeks first right relationships and he discovers freedom from worry as a reward. And then the second part of Jesus' formula for killing worry is in verse 34. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Jesus probably was repeating a proverb of his day. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus said that worry can be defeated by developing the art of living a day at a time. If each day is lived as it comes, if each task is done as it appears, then the sum of all those days is bound to be good. Now, Jesus isn't ruling out planning or forethought. Good planning yields usually good living. But the wisest planner knows that when it comes to actually working his plan, he has to concentrate on today's part of the plan and leave tomorrow's responsibilities for tomorrow. God is greater than our worry. The world's path to peace is to try to remove all the circumstances that cause our frustrations. One way or another to remove those circumstances. To forget your problems and in alcohol or, or drugs or to uh, get the credit you deserve taking out another home equity loan for the money you need to do what you want to consolidate all your payments into one to take a pill to get some therapy to take a trip to find a hobby to attend a seminar to leave an old relationship for a new one to get more education to find a better job invest more wisely you can think of other solutions too, can't you? All of those solutions stem from the same idea that if you remove the irritants or the causes of the anxiety, then you can have peace. But it doesn't work that way. Peace is not achieved by changing the circumstances. True peace is an, an internal state of being that affects the outward. The only place this kind of peace can be found is in the Lord. By following him to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. The world's peace is determined by the surrounding circumstances and thus the world doesn't have much peace. But God's peace is present in spite of the circumstances and only in the peace of God can we find calm in the middle of the storm. And that peace allows us to have hope as we face the death of a loved one. It allows us to face financial needs with the trust that God somehow will provide. It gives us the ability to, ability to remain calm even when everything seems to be going wrong. 
It allows us to experience physical injury or disability with the knowledge that he is still in control. It does not take us out of our circumstances, whatever they might be, but it bears us up in those circumstances so that we not only survive them, but we glorify God in the process. And so when the situation screams at us to panic, to cry, to fight, to run, to grab, to shout, to kick, to scream, and especially to worry, God's peace allows us to calmly wait upon him. Amen. Amen. Let us stand. Listen to God's word. Put it into practice. From Paul's letter to the Philippians. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can ever understand. May the love and peace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit go with you from this place and forevermore. Amen.